If you love Push Black's Black History Year, you'll love our newest podcast called Two Minute Black History. In only two minutes, you'll hear little known stories about our people and reclaim the knowledge we need to take action and advance our community. To move towards the future, you've got to look to the past. Learn the history you didn't get in school. Tune in to Two Minute Black History every Tuesday through Friday, right on the Black History Year feed and wherever you listen to podcasts. For millennia, our ancestors have looked to the stars for guidance. Whether praying to Aludamari, the lord of the heavens in the Yoruba tradition, or following the North Star to freedom, our people have always shared a special relationship with the cosmos, the universe, and the concept of space. However, what once seemed light years away has in recent history come within arm's reach, or at least just a space flight away. I'm Len from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. Thanks to the remarkable contributions of Black women who were often regulated to the status of hidden figures, humankind successfully touched down on the moon. With that single step, a world of possibilities opened up, giving way to today's billionaires who casually embark on joy rides into space and invest in new space ventures. What does this mean for us? And should Black folks claim our place in the new space economy? Today's guest is well-versed in these matters and addresses hard-hitting questions about space colonialism, generational wealth, and what the future in space could look like for Black people. Jenea Griffin, the self-proclaimed commercializer and space revolutionist, is a strategy consultant and serial social entrepreneur. As an advocate for intellectual property, social justice, and generational wealth, she now works with the Equity Space Alliance to ensure that the new space economy remains diverse, equitable, inclusive, and accessible. This interview pushes the boundaries of space and time, and it's one you won't want to miss. First, let's delve into today's history story, which focuses on a woman who fought for our economic rights right here on Earth. Stay tuned. She fought for our civil and political rights, but did not ignore the financial issues affecting us. She realized our economic justice goes hand in hand with our freedom and stopped at nothing to achieve both. Fannie Lou Hamer was the youngest of 20 children growing up on a plantation and working hard to make ends meet with her family. She knew what it meant to struggle in this country despite hard work. Hamer would separate herself from her civil rights peers by focusing on economic justice. She realized there was no way for Black people to be free in this country without true economic power. Hamer would see money as a means for the system to control us and poverty as its weapon of choice, saying, if you have a pig in your backyard, if you have some vegetables in your garden, you can feed yourself and your family, and nobody can push you around. Standing on her philosophy, Hamer created the Freedom Farm Cooperative, a community-based rural and economic development project to address hunger and poverty 
Many contributed to Hamer's Freedom Farm, including the National Council of Negro Women and celebrities like Harry Belafonte. Hamer used her childhood struggles as inspiration to fight for her people, a lesson we should all take with us today in our continued fight for economic liberation. What does Black liberation look like to you? Mm. Black liberation? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I'd say it looks like love and freedom. Oh, Black love is probably the most powerful energy on this planet, in this universe. And so I think if we have the freedom to love, if we have um, the freedom to express that love in whatever that may be, whether that be through business dealings with our family, with whatever connections we have, with things that we just love to do, that is mm -hmm. liberating in itself um, because there is a spiritual atmosphere or environment um if you can put your mindset in this era this time where it's nothing but love coming in and flowing out flowing through you that's liberating in itself i think that may be the first time somebody like evoked black love and equating that with black liberation so i really appreciate the imagery of that so it begs to me the next question then what does Black love look like to you? Mm. <laughs> Why are you trying to stump? Me, <laughs> um, I mean, it transcends time and space mm -hmm. and just things. It, there is no, I don't think you could actually put, you know, it, it's going to be different for for everyone. Right, right. Right. There, There are different love languages. And I think the way that people feel love or they express love um, is very different because everybody is their own individual. Um, and so sometimes, you know, when you say like, oh, I love you, that may mean a lot of different things to different people. And so, especially when you start talking about black love, right? Um, I think that there's just a freedom in that, right? There is a, you know, it, it's a tool, right? That you can use to either you know, tear somebody down or <laughs> build somebody build them up, up. because black right. love is powerful, right? It, it, it causes people to do a lot of crazy things, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, it does. So, <laughs> yes, it does. And so um, you can either be destroyed or created. <laughs> mm -hmm. Depend <laughs> what you're looking for. Black love. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so I don't think you can really, it, it's just, it, it's a lot of different things, but I don't think it's one cookie cutter thing that you can just say, so. That's cool. Yeah. And how does the work that you do, how would you say that aids in us achieving Black liberation or, to put it in your words, Black love? Um, I think that with, you know, the work I do around intellectual property and commercialization, um, that a lot of times the things that we most uh, want out of life is, is freedom. Mm -hmm. And freedom looks differently for for most folks. But for me, I always say that the freedom was always in the ownership. And so the way that I love with my people is by educating them about the things that I know to be true that maybe we might not have access to, right? Or we might not have knowledge of that can get them closer to 
that goal of freedom that they have, which then equates to Black love. Got you. Okay. I see that connection. What is the origin story of Jenea Griffin, the commercializer? Uh, so I worked at NASA for about eight and a half years as a contractor doing tech transfer and commercialization. Mm-hmm. Um, and through that, I got the opportunity to sit on the executive board of an organization called the Federal Laboratory Consortium. And so that was like all of the federal labs, including NASA. There was like over 350 of them that all focused on tech transfer, which is licensing and selling their patents and their intellectual property. Um, okay. In a nutshell. Um, and so I had started a committee that was focused around increasing more engagement with the minority-owned businesses and the federal labs. And so as I prepared to go out and speak to people about the capabilities they had, the facilities, the technologies, and you know, just the resources that people had access to, I wanted to have a professional moniker. So I was just like, I, you know, I want to go by something. Like, what, okay. what do I go by? And so it really came down to like, well, what do you do? And I was just like, well, I commercialize stuff. So I'm the commercializer. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so it kind of just, you know, stuck. That became my brand. That became what people knew me as. Um, and it got, you know, bigger the more, you know, stages I, I got on. And the more that I introduce myself as that, because that's a memorable thing. I don't just introduce myself as Janae. I say, my name is Janae Griffin and I'm the commercializer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so people would know me as that and they would know my brand as that. And then, um, and then because I was advocating for intellectual property and the ownership of that intellectual property, I said, well, I can't be, be just out here, you know, not owning any, IP myself. <laughs> if I am spreading the gospel, if I'm speaking this, that I need to walk the walk, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so I went and trademarked uh, the commercializer. Um, yeah. And so that is what you see. So now I use that in all of my, in everything, everywhere, even my, <laughs> even in my contact card. It's so funny. My friends, uh, they tease me because they're like, why can't I just say call Janae? I have to say call Janae the commercializer Griffin. <laughs> so that's like a running joke that we have because Siri always says my entire uh, name that's in my contact card. So, yeah. So you definitely are official. Siri only knows you by the commercializer. <laughs> so you are officially official. Okay. <laughs> But let's backtrack a little bit with you being at NASA for for eight years, because so many people I hear like their story starts with, you know, um, being intrigued by the stars and or following the footsteps of black people in our relationship with space. How is it that you found yourself working at NASA? Yeah, my story is completely different. <laughs> completely different. Like I had no intention of like going to space. <laughs> so, so is it just a matter of you just filled out an application? Like, how did you get uh, so, to, to NASA? Yes and no. Um, so I ended up um, when I was in high school. Uh, right before I graduated, there was a program called the NASA SHARP program. And it basically was like this apprenticeship program for high school students. So they could, you know, shadow and basically get an internship 
at NASA. I, I really wanted to be a computer tech at first. Okay. And, okay. Um, and so they were like, they gave you a list of, you know, things. This is, you know, what you can choose from, you know, so you could kind of just figure out if it's something that you wanted to do or not. They selected maybe like a handful of us. When I finally got there, I was like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And I do not want to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, and so I decided that, hey, there was this after school program um, that I would always do around like crime scene investigation. So I just decided okay. to go into that. And I was like, all right, I want to be CSI, you know, do all that great stuff. So I ended up mm. going to Gramlin State. Uh, university after that and I got two degrees one in criminal justice and the other in chemistry with a concentration in forensic science and then ended up graduating and was like this is great but I don't think I want to look at dead buddies for the rest of my life and I don't want to be in a lab for the rest of my life um I don't know what I want to do but it's not this and I really want to be able to make an impact but I just don't know what that looks like um, and so my, uh, the dean of my college at that time, um, and I still, I don't think I've ever told him this story. This is so funny. Um, he called me in his office one day and was like, Janae, I have something for you. Like it's an opportunity. And so the first thing he says to me is, um, I don't think that you can have a boss. And I said, well, Dr. Mm. Hubbard, I'm not sure if I should take that as a, you know, a compliment. a compliment or not like and so he goes well no what i'm trying to tell you is like about entrepreneurship so um there was this fellowship um and it took us to california and it basically took hbcu students who had stem backgrounds and it taught us yes. the business side of things so i ended up going to cal state university san bernardino that's where the program was it was called the integrated technology transfer network um, and it was a fellowship, so I got like $50,000. They gave, they gave us a new car for a year. They gave us a laptop. They gave us a stipend. Nice. It was a really great program. And they mm -hmm. introduced us to a lot of different things. So that's where I first got introduced to the federal labs, to technology transfer, to intellectual property, to VCs, like before mm -hmm. there was any like rumblings in the VC world about black people not getting you know, any dollars, like I was in those rooms, right? So what, what ended up happening was I really enjoyed the work. And so I, so what, what, what happened was there was a project that we were working on and I was able to utilize every aspect of my life essentially to solve this one problem. It was the NIH, the National Institutes of Health and the FDA. Okay. Um, the Food and Drug Administration. And they um, they had a technology that they were trying to commercialize. And so we were doing commercialization assessments on these mm -hmm. technologies, basically telling them like, okay, hey, this is, you know, how it could be licensed. This is what market, what area we're going to. This is the type of product that it could become. And it was a pharmaceutical device that basically like would be able to tell you if your drugs were counterfeit or not. So I was able to basically pair that with the work that I had done when I was an intern during my crime scene investigation days with like mm. looking at different like um, evidence. So you have like different types of UV lights that can tell you if it's blood spatter, if it's DNA, all, all those types of things. And so they would carry around like 15 different lights to help them identify 
the type of um, evidence that it was. With this product, you could just have the handheld device and you could flip through each of the UV lights. So like it really took down the cost and like the weight, because when you're in the field, you don't want to be carrying around like all of this stuff, you know? And so when I was able to do that, I was like, oh, wow, like I'm, I'm able to problem solve, but I can use my experiences, the things that I know, and like just bring everything together because that was something that I really wanted to do. I wanted to be able to utilize everything that I had learned. So I said, I want to do tech transfer. And I just scoured the internet <laughs> for jobs and, you know, different positions. And I came across one that was at NASA and it was at the same center that I had got my internship at before. Okay. Um, so it was close to home. Um, and so I just applied online. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like your future was in the stars. You just didn't see them. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. <laughs> Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast working there at nasa did you develop an appreciation for black people and our historical relationship with space and the stars so NASA has 10 different centers and they mm-hmm. all do different things, right? right. So at, at this specific center is the Armstrong Flight Research Center and they focus on flight research. So I'm around a lot of planes, a lot of, you know, F, F-15s, F-18s, F-whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. shuttles, you know, that are there, a glider plane. Like I'm around a lot of those drones, like all of those things. Um, and so it was cool, but I wasn't like, you know, it was just, it was my job. And, um, and so my focus is really around like economic development, essentially, um, getting the technologies and the innovations that they had and, um, getting them out to the commercial world so that, you know, commercial products could be created from them. So like there would be rocket launches and I would be excited about it, but it wasn't something where I was just like, not how I'm locked in now. Like it was not the same. And people would ask me like, oh, did you see that? And I was just like, nah, I was, I was at work, you know, that that's not my area. And so Mm -hmm. as I started talking to people 
um, and realizing and getting their their reaction to me telling them that I work at NASA, they would be like, you know, they one, they never met anybody that worked at NASA, let alone a black person. And so that was just kind of like mind boggling for me. But I mean, NASA is very diverse. Um, you go to Houston, is none but black people there. <laughs> um, really? And you're in DC, there's a lot of black people at NASA. And then George Floyd was murdered. And then, you know, um, then it became, I want to say it became a thing, but I was very more intentional about like, we really don't have any black people here. <laughs> like, really? really? Right. You know, like there, like, you know, it, it was just something you just normalize it. Right. It, it's just not a lot. It's not a lot of us. So, you know, that's cool. You try to get more people in, but it's not something that like you're. You, you don't you don't have the pitchforks out about but then when George Floyd was murdered like the pitchforks came out and we were like listen we 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 have noticed it and we've normalized it but it's not right and so like y'all need to mm-hmm. do something about this I just saw a documentary a new documentary called the space race which is all about the history of the black astronaut mm-hmm. and they were talking to Victor Glover who's mm-hmm. a prominent astronaut of today spent six months on the international space station and at the time that he was on the space station was around the time of the of george floyd's murder and the protests that were happening in his name and that documentary kind of touches on that it became a bit of a prickly subject in the halls of nasa Mm -hmm. at Mm -hmm. that time and it sounds Mm -hmm. like you're kind of like giving validation to that I mean, it was it was worldwide. Like mm-hmm. it was it. NASA was not excluded <laughs> from that. Like it was That's everywhere. Very true. Very if, true. if there was black people, you were hearing about it, and you know, and the way that you treated those people was a reflection of your organization. So it didn't matter who you were. You're you're not <laughs> you're not excluded from this. You know, um, it needs to change everywhere. And so, even though it may have been normalized, I, I think you get to see specifically with being in an area that we're in where they're, you know, we're in a very isolated area. We're on an air force base. And so, you know, there's not, there, there are some black folks that are in the surrounding towns. If you are on base, you're there for a reason. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that like it's enough, right? Like mm-hmm. e- everywhere it was not enough. Like no one was doing enough. Um, what are we doing about it? What are we doing to support our people? What does that even look like? Um, mm-hmm. How can we best support them and put these structures in place to make sure that the systemic racism and just all these different things are not affecting us in the way to where we will continue to normalize it? Did everything that happened, did that do anything to the perspective or focus on the work that you were doing? Um, so I will say yes and no. I think um one when I was when I was at NASA, we we ended up chartering or reforming the Black Employee Resource Group. Um, you know, we got to have our our voices heard. They gave us a platform for that. Um, mm-hmm. And then to really ask us, like, what is it that you need? What, how can we best support? And so I think they did show up in that way. 
Um, and then, you know, with the with the other work that I was doing, I think it has always been about liberating Black people, right? Getting them to uh, experience that freedom, um, getting them to be very intentional and educating them about the value of intellectual property and generational wealth and what that looks like and how they can attain it. Um, and so I think that definitely charged um, the batteries in my back to want to, you know, double down on that and say, like, this is why it is very important. This is why we need to be doing these things. But I think what it did for a lot of people was put kind of like this magnifying glass on the the struggles and the challenges that we were already facing, but maybe were not so prevalent. And it gave you a platform and it gave you a voice. And so now the work that you were doing was being seen by more than, you know, just your surrounding, you know, community or who you were in close proximity to. You you speak about the work you were doing was getting Black people to recognize, you know, the power they have, the power of their own intellectual property. What does that work look like? What exactly were you doing? So I will say that, like, I didn't, I, I knew about intellectual property and patents and different things like that, but I didn't really know about it, right, until I went through that program. And then I ended up going back to my alma mater and I was like, hey, where's our tech transfer office? And no one could answer that question for me. Okay. And so when that happened, I was like, this is not a, I thought that every school had a tech transfer office. I thought that everybody was, you know, licensing out their intellectual property and commercializing their patents and different things like that. And, um, and to my surprise, that was not something that was happening within the HBCU culture. Um, or, you know, as I started talking to more people within my community, you know, they don't even, what is intellectual property? What's a patent? Or getting patents mixed up with trademarks or, hey, I want to patent my name. And it's like, yeah, that's not how, that's not how that works. And so mm -hmm. everything has been really about the protection of things so things don't get stolen, but not about profiting from it, right? Like not about owning it so that you can dictate what gets done with it. So you can say, hey, now I can give this to you. I can give you the rights to this so that I can actually monetize it and okay. make money from it. And, you know, and looking at it from that perspective, because every time I talked with somebody about, you know, intellectual property, they're like, oh, I don't want to patent it. Or I don't, I don't need any IP. Uh, I don't need to protect it because nobody's going to steal this idea from me, right? And it's just like it's not really about the ability for it to be stolen, but it's really about you more so owning, having the ownership of it. So I always say the freedom is in the ownership, right? The S and P five hundred, those companies, eighty four percent of their value comes from intellectual property. So whether that be patents or trademarks or copyrights or just their proprietary and confidential business lists or client lists or, you know, frameworks or whatever that looks like. Right. Eighty four percent of their value is based on intellectual property. And we do not value it in the same regard. 
And so that really opened up this kind of like hole for me to kind of go down because I'm like, why don't we? Like, yeah. I, I was so intrigued about the why, why, why don't we value IP the way that we should? Why are we so freely giving it up and giving it away? And so um, I started to just learn um, and immerse myself into, you know, Black people and, and patents and our inventions and like what an intellectual property looked like back in the 1700s and like all these different things. And so I ended up testifying to Congress around that. So it came with, you know, advocacy, right? Advocating for our rights, advocating for um, getting people involved and breaking down the barriers that we face when it comes to the patent commercialization process. Well, let's share some of that information. Why do we not hold the value or have historically not held the value of our intellectual property? Um, and so this is just my theory. One, I think if we can pass down generational wealth, we can also pass down generational trauma. Fair. And so for I think it's a subconscious thing. And for centuries, right? Um, back in 17, in the 1700s, there was a law um, in Virginia, and it was called a meritorious manumission or as an act. Um, and so it essentially, and Dr. Claude Anderson talks about this, uh, but there's three ways that as someone who was enslaved, you could gain your freedom mm-hmm. or be given free or granted freedom. Right. Um, and so those three ways are one, if you essentially told on somebody or like if somebody was about to run away, if there was like a gathering that was happening, like basically if you snitched on somebody. Uh, <laughs> the other one was if you saved the person who enslaved you, if you saved their life. Um, right. And the third one um, was if you gave them something that they could profit off of, like mm. an invention. Right. And so when I heard about that, I was like, what? (laughs) Like, are you kidding me? And so for me, I feel like for forever, for ages, we've always had to trade our life for our IP. Mm -hmm. And our life is never going to be less valuable through generations that has continued to stick with us and subconsciously we're even doing that to this day when we um, are going out and raising funds, right? And mm-hmm. begging, you know, our non-melanated brothers and sisters <laughs> for for money, right? And to mm-hmm. say, hey, VC, take my IP for my freedom, right? And freedom to us today looks like time and money. It looks it looked different back then, right? Certainly. And so today it's like, okay, well, I know that if I could raise these dollars, if I could raise these funds, then you know, I will give up anything. And it doesn't necessarily have to be about raising funds, right? It could even be you going and getting a job and your employer is essentially uh, making you sign over a sign over all of your rights to your IP. Anything that you create, sometimes those those clauses in those contracts are deep. Like it doesn't matter even if they, they, it's not something that you are being paid to do. If it is something that you have done in the course of your work while you are there, even outside of your working time, 
they can own it or they have the right to say, we want to look at it to make sure that we don't own it. And so I think a lot of people don't realize that because they're like, oh, well, I don't have any IP to give over right now until it's too late. And then now when you do invent something, you do come up with something, the, that employer owns that outright. And they don't have to give you any money for it. Like some of them, they will, they'll, they'll share and maybe you know, get a bonus, but it's capped, right? You mm-hmm. only get to make $150,000 extra on top of maybe your salary or whatever that bonus looks like. That's what you get, but they dictate how much right. money you get from that. They dictate what happens to it. They dictate, you know, all these different things. And so when I testified to Congress, it was around increasing the diversity um, in patents. And so for me, them saying that they wanted to get more black people and they wanted to start kind of, um, uh, they wanted to start collecting data on your race, right? And ethnicity of the people who, were inventors i'm like that doesn't really mean anything that's a vanity metric at this point because if those people don't actually outright own that patent they don't get to actually profit from it the way in which they should so yeah you can capture it and say hey we got million black inventors but none of them own the rights to their invention because they had to assign those rights over so This takes us to the space economy, which I'm trying to wrap my head around, especially because I'm talking to someone who didn't even know her future was in the stars. (laughs) And now (laughs) she's advocating that Black people, you know, hey, have you noticed the stars? Our future is in the stars. And not only should our future in our stars, our economic fortunes are there in the stars. So first, I need you to define exactly what is the space economy? What does that mean? Um, so I like to just break it down very simply, like any any economy, right? Any industry, right? It's the space industry, Um it's the, you know, it's the rockets and the satellites and the launches and the, right, <laughs> you know, right. anything that really has to do with space. But now you're starting to look at um, different um, startups coming in um, to where you're looking at space tourism. You're looking mm. at, so it's not just about the government right now. There's a lot of commercial entities that are coming in and doing work. There's um, you know, movies, right? So there's space in in music, there's space in entertainment, in fashion, in food, in like so. Th- these are these are economies, right? There there are different industries that are starting um, or have been created, but they're being magnified now. Um, and and we're really starting to aggregate the amount of money that is being spent and being made um, through the use of space. Uh, whether that be space-enabled technologies or um, or space-based technologies. And so there are a lot of things that we use today that um, are a result of us wanting to explore space. So like you think about all the satellites, right? GPS navigation, um, right. how that's being used in agriculture and then the weather forecasting and just all of these different things so it's not just the future, it's it's currently, 
And then mm. it is like the innovations and the different things that we will come to to have um, as a result of us using space currently right now. So what does black people's participation in this economy, what does that look like? Um, I mean, there are a lot, there have been a lot of black people who have already been participating from, you know, uh, a workforce standpoint. I mean, we have, you know, different black astronauts. Right. Um, we have a lot of people who are working at NASA. Right. So I think it really just when I when I start thinking about an economy, I think about ways in which people are able to generate wealth. Um, mm. And so if you are. And and this is no knock to anybody that just wants to work, right? They just want to be an employee because you're still able to, um, you know, garner wealth in a certain in a certain manner um, by, you know, stock options or, you know, different things, especially in an upcoming industry that is an emerging industry. I always equate like the dot com boom to like Mm -hmm. the new space industry or the new space economy. And so. Like people who got in very early into that industry as it was emerging, as it was, you know, coming on board, they became very wealthy very early on. Um, I think space is industry agnostic. So it, it's going to go across every industry that you could ever imagine. Um, and so at this point, for Black people to be involved outside of working for someone else to build it, there's opportunities for us to have ownership in the development of what this looks like, right? We're talking about going to um, another planet, about being becoming multiplanetary species. And how does that fare if we're still dealing and struggling with the same challenges that we have here on Earth, but just get, but just up there, right? Like, so we're going to go to another planet and still be begging for diversity, equity, inclusion, what like that's not gonna matter that's gonna be the least of our worries <laughs> right, right. before we get there then it's gonna be something that is a it's a cyclical process right we're just gonna keep continue to repeat it and so now is the opportunity to get in while it's being developed while people still don't know what's going on or what's gonna happen there's still being regulations developed around it um things are still being formed and so we can get in now and say okay we need to be thinking about X, Y, and Z so that we don't repeat these same challenges or struggles in the future. Um, and so our goal is really focused on the ownership aspect of it, but it's really more so like, how can you get to a point where you can start to profit off of what this looks like um, and really you know, start to educate our community more about it because there's a huge um, challenge and a stigma right, that exists with space just for people in general. But then for Black people, it's just like, oh, we don't belong in that. That's not us. That's that's what they say. That's for white folks. And I'm mm-hmm. like, no, it's not, it's not just for white folks, right? Like, there is so much space in our lives currently right now. You know, I tell people that you've touched space at least 10 times before you walked out of your house and you probably don't even realize it, right? Um And so, like, if we can start to get more educated about just how much space is actually in our life and how much we use it, how much we contribute to it, what that can look like, then we will be more willing to jump in and dive in when it is emerging into, like, this new industry or this new economy 
and really, you know, take the reins on like, okay, what can this do for our people? And I know that that's the mission between behind uh, the Equity Space Alliance. Um, that really yeah. is uh, is your mission there. But what do you say to people? Because I'm sure you've heard this before. It's like, mm-hmm. well, shouldn't we be focusing on all of the challenges that we have right here, right here on Earth? What do yeah. you say to that? And we get that all the time. Like, oh my gosh, you don't know how many, <laughs> how many countless times that has been people's response or their reaction. And, you know, um, I add a little humor into it, but I, I also believe that, you know, especially with the work that I did at NASA around tech transfer commercialization, the things that we have now are a result of us wanting to explore space. Like being able to get x-rays at the dentist, have, you know, a baby formula that's nutritional, um, being able to have vertical farms, right? Growing up right, growing with, you know, LED lights and different things like that. All of this has been a result of space exploration. So if we had not been, you know, looking out further into the future, if we had not been looking at the stars, then a lot of the things that we have right now that make our lives much easier um, or make our lives more connected, we would not have today. Mm. Um, So that's one aspect that I share. The other aspect that I say is that we spend more annually in, in buying chapstick than it costs us to send a vehicle to space. Really? So if if we really wanted to like <laughs> like you know solve some problems then like we should just like switch to shea butter or something or like <laughs> you know just have chap lips for a year. I mean, but as we're talking about, you know, this money being spent to go to space, like it's something that we we must spend on in order to continue to iterate and innovate and progress as a society and as a human race. Um, But the two can be true at the same time, right? So yes, there are still our challenges and yes, we still need to be moving forward so that we can maybe find the solutions to some of these challenges where we wouldn't have found them if we would have just stayed in this area. Could we imagine a world where the technologies and the things that we use today, you know, we didn't have? Like, what would that world look like, right? And going back from a historical reference, like the stars were used by our ancestors to build the pyramids, to navigate the seas, to do, to do farming and like for our calendars and like all of these different things. So right. for us to say, like, we are wasting time by like we've done this for like forever (laughs) like we've always done this so it's not something that just came about or you know something that is new like we've always used the stars to help us to advance our civilizations what is the the biggest challenge for our involvement in this economy the stigma the the knowledge that we have about it when you don't know something when you don't know what you know um and when you're uncomfortable with it 
right? You're just going to stray away from me. You're going to say, no, that's not for me. Um, and I think that being more knowledgeable about it will allow us to push away the naysayers mm-hmm. or, and, to, and to push forward and be more, have more audacity to do the things that people say that we cannot do or to be in spaces where people exclude us. Right. Like you can't tell me that I can't be here or that I'm not supposed to be doing this just because I don't see anybody that looks like me in it. Like that was on purpose. Right. We're not in these spaces because that's how it was built. We were built to not be, you know, in there amongst them. And so I think it's very important that like we don't allow that to stop us or to to put us in a position to where now our mindset is what they want it to be like, no, nah, we don't belong. But if we were, if we knew, right, if we knew, if we were knowledgeable, if we um, were educated about what's happening, about the opportunities, about what we can do, then we wouldn't let anything or anyone stop us. Thank you, Janaya Griffin, for taking the time to talk with us here and educate us on the space economy on Black History Year. Thank you. That was Janaea Griffin with the Equity Space Alliance. To learn more about the space economy and our place in it, visit www.equityspacealliance.com. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. We believe telling empowering stories on black life and history can build a more liberated black future. Being here with us lets us know you probably feel like that's important too. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do five or ten bucks a month, but really, everything makes a difference. Thank you for supporting the work. Black History Year is a production of Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. Our team includes Tarek Alani, Brooke Brown, Tasha Taylor, Somalia Rahman, Amber Davis, and Darren Wallace. Producing this episode, we have Sydney Smith and Lynn Webb for Push Black, and Ronald Young Jr., who also edits the show. Black History Year's executive producers are Lily Workna and me, Julian Walker. Peace. <laughs>